about 10 years ago, uh, a book came out and then a movie by the same title. And as is usually the case, uh, the book called Atonement by Ian McEwan was much better than the movie. In this book, uh, Bryony, a 13-year-old girl, catches a glimpse of her older sister, Cecilia, in an emotionally charged encounter with Robbie, the son of one of the family's servants. And Bryony later discovers and reads a love letter that Robbie wrote to Cecilia that is quite passionate and aggressive, to put it mildly. And this letter was never sent, but it was written only wishfully by Robbie. And when Bryony's cousin Lola is abused and taken care of and taken advantage of, Bryony concludes that Robbie must have done it. And he falsely claims to have seen his face when she witnessed the event. And Bryony's claims get Robbie thrown in jail and breaks her sister Cecilia's heart. As Bryony matures, she comes to understand the damage that's that she's caused, and she attempts to atone for it, hence the name of the book, only to discover a terrible truth. You cannot give back all of those years that have been lost. And by the end of the book, we find that there is no atonement in the book Atonement. And what's true in this book is true in real life. That any, any human attempts at atonement inevitably fall short. Now, although it's not a commonly used word today, the concept of atonement is central to the entire storyline of the Bible. And we'll get to its meaning in a moment. We've been in a series uh, the last few weeks on, on the fi- first five books of the Bible. And we're reading it through a book called Immerse that has those uh, books in it. And get excited, because this is the day you have all been waiting for, because we're going to look at Leviticus. So gird up your linen ephods, because we're ready to go. Uh, Now, if you didn't grow up in the church, the book of Leviticus is going to feel foreign to you. Um, You might even be put off for it. So if, if you're a relatively new believer, or you're new to the church, I want to encourage you to hang in there with me, okay? Because even those of us who did grow up in the church or have been around for a long time, Leviticus feels foreign to us. Um, And I think part of what will help us to make sense of this strange book is reading it in the context of the history of God's people so far. It's what we've been exploring the past few weeks. Uh, And since many of you have been reading along, Uh, This should be a good review for you. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, and human beings are the pinnacle of that creation. But then things go horribly wrong in Genesis chapter 3. And the human beings disobey God. And as a result, sin and death and evil enter the whole world. And from the beginning, we see that God is determined to deal with the sin and evil that's in this world. And his first long-term response is found in Genesis chapter 12, where God chooses a man, Abraham. And God tells Abraham that he will be a blessing to, the whole, to all the nations, to the whole world. That God will bring blessing and restoration and salvation through Abraham 
and his family. And this family grows and becomes a people group. And by the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, they find themselves in Egypt. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up. Um, they've, and they've become slaves to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And God confronts Pharaoh, and through Moses, God miraculously sets his people free. And God leads the Israelites, you know, crossing the Red Sea through this amazing, amazing account. And then leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law. And God makes a covenant with Moses and with the nation of Israel that he will be their God and they will be his people. In fact, these people will become a kingdom of priests. The Israelites were called to represent God to the nations and represent the nations to God. And so, so much of what we have in the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are about helping the Israelites become a nation that is distinct from all other nations. You see, God is on a mission to bless the world. And he intends to do it through these people, the people of Israel. So God gives them plans for a tabernacle in the second half of Exodus, a place where God would dwell in their midst. And this tabernacle would become like a movable Mount Sinai. So wherever the people went, God's presence would go with them. But there's one big problem. As we saw in the video, God is holy and righteous and good, and the people are not. Far from it, in fact. And yet we think if anyone should have been able to obey God and keep his commandments, surely it was these people. God was right there. He's right there on top of this mountain, Mount Sinai. He's right there. They can see him in all of his power and glory. So I think we're supposed to read these stories all throughout the Old Testament and especially in the Torah and think to ourselves, oh yeah, I'm just as foolish and dumb as these people are. I mess up far too often all the time in my life. And so by the end of the book of Exodus, the book presents a problem to us. The whole second half of the book focuses on the building of this elaborate tabernacle so that God could dwell with his people. But Exodus chapter 40 verse 35 says, Moses could not enter it because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the whole point of this tabernacle was so that the people could interact with God and be in God's presence and yet not even Moses could enter it. And so the problem that Exodus presents is this. How does a broken, corrupt people like the Israelites live near God's goodness without being completely destroyed? And we discover the answer to this problem in the book of Leviticus. Now, what God does in the book of Leviticus, is provide the people with an elaborate set of ritual symbols that they're to perform in this tabernacle. The Israelites couldn't just waltz into God's presence casually. They need to approach him with a different posture. And the symbols and rituals in Leviticus communicate two key things to us. They tell Israel something about their sin and something about God. And what are some of the primary rituals and symbols In Leviticus, 
killing animals. I know, it is bizarre. The symbols and imagery in Leviticus are completely foreign to us, even barbaric. And some of you are going to feel uncomfortable, even as I read through some of these passages. But they would have been very familiar to the people of Israel, as every other nation around them performed sacrifices to their gods. In the ancient Near East, sacrifices were the main way to buy favor from the gods. If a god was angry at you, you offer a sacrifice to him. But the gods were unpredictable. You never knew if they were going to turn on you. And so you never knew where you stood with these gods. And so the fact that the Israelites would have a sacrificial system would make perfect sense in that day. It doesn't make much sense to us, but in that day it made perfect sense to them. And the, but the book of Leviticus shows us that Israel's God, the only one true God, is different. God does get angry about human sin and evil and corruption, but it's not arbitrary. God loves his people, and in the book of Leviticus, he provides a clear way for the Israelites to know with confidence where they stand in relationship to him, that they're forgiven and that they are safe to enter into his presence. So in that respect, while it may seem barbaric to us, Leviticus was revolutionary in those days compared to all the other nations around them. The book of Leviticus is one long divine speech delivered to Moses as he stands outside the tabernacle, unable to enter. The first seven chapters lay out the sacrifices of the priests uh, that they're to perform on behalf of the people. And two of them, the fellowship and the grain offering, are ways of just saying thank you to God. For example, I have an abundant harvest, and I want to thank God for that, for his provision for my family for our community. And so I offer him and give him an offering simply to say thank you to him. And then three of the sacrifices, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the burnt offering are ways to say I'm sorry to God. So let me read a passage to help us identify the sin offering. And if you have your immersed Bibles with you, that's on page 157. It's the first full paragraph on that page. For the rest of us, it's Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27 to 31. Let me read this passage so we get a sense for this, for what a sin offering is. And it says this, If any of the common people sin by violating one of the Lord's commands, but they don't realize it, they are still guilty. When they become aware of their sin, they must bring as an offering for their sin a female goat with no defects. They must lay a hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place where burnt offerings are slaughtered. And then the priest will dip his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. He will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And then he must remove All of the goat's fat, just as he does with the fat of the peace offering. He will burn the fat on the altar, and it will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And through this process, the priest will purify the people, making them right with the Lord, and they will be forgiven. Let me read the last part of that verse in the NIV. It says, in this way, the priest will make atonement for him, and he will be 
forgiven. So how does this work? Well, let's say that you unintentionally cheat your neighbor, but later you realize what you've done. You can make amends with your friend, you can apologize to him, but you haven't just offended your friend, you've also offended God. And so you take an animal and consult with a priest, and this animal is going to die. The priest will slit the animal's throat in front of you, and the blood will be drained into a bowl in front of you. The animal will be butchered, and part of it will be burnt on the altar. Now, because you're an everyday Israelite with no real status in the community, blood is just sprinkled on the altar. So what on earth is happening here? In order to make sense of this story I just told, and really to make sense to, of all of Leviticus, we need to know what this word atonement means. Atonement is a bit of a foreign word if you didn't grow up in the church. And my guess is even if you did grow up in the church, unless you had a really deep theological discussion in the past couple of weeks, you may not have used it in a sentence recently. The English word atonement sort of gets at it. You can break it down into a few parts, at one mint. So atonement is taking two things or people that are at odds with one another and making them at one with each other. And that's not bad. But atonement does more than that. The Hebrew word is kippur. Uh, I think a better translation of kippur is to cover. So when someone makes atonement for you, they cover for you. They're erasing, they're taking away the consequences. But it can also mean to purify, repair, or restore. I heard an illustration recently that I think might be helpful for us this morning. Let's say that you and I go out to lunch. And we're enjoying our meal, but when it comes time to pay, I realize, man, I forgot my wallet at home. I have no cash, no debit or credit cards, nothing. Have I failed? Yes. Is it the worst failure that I could do in a day? Not by a long shot. Trust me, I could do much worse than that. Now, you could be a really nice person and not say what you're really thinking in that moment, and say, oh, no big deal, I forgive you. But then in a little while, the server's going to come, and that server is going to give us the bill. Now, I suppose I could tell that server, you know what, Uh, I forgot my wallet at home, I I have no way of paying for this, but you know what, I talked to my friend, and my friend has forgiven me, so it's all good. (laughs) How do you think that server is going to respond? Your friend must be a really nice person, but here's the bill. And I want to know who's going to pay for it. Forgiveness is an act that involves absorbing a cost. Uh, You can say that you've forgiven me, but my failure has produced a debt that needs to be paid in some way. So if you're really going to forgive me, you have to cover for me and pay for my bill. The server doesn't care if you like me or don't like me. The server wants to know how you're going to cover the cost of my meal. That's atonement. That's covering for someone. But atonement does even more than that. Now let's say that you and I go out for lunch every week for a month and every single time I forget my wallet. I'm pretty sure that's going to change our relationship. You might resent me. 
You might call my wife and say, what is the deal with your husband? You might call Craig, does the church not pay enough? Pay him enough? What's going on here? Uh, I am making our relationship toxic. Because I must not respect you if if I'm just going to mooch off you every single time we go out for a meal. What is the deal with that? Well, atonement covers the hard costs of the failure, the debts that I've left unpaid, but there's also, there also needs to be some resolution in our relationship. This relational tension that I've created, the damage that's been done because of what I've done to you, because of how I've been treating you. And that's what atonement does. It covers the hard cost of the failure. It pays the debts that I can't pay. And it restores the relationship that's been broken. So what would an Israelite experience while making this sin offering? If I cheat my neighbor, and then I have to go before a priest and watch a goat's throat be slit, and the blood is drained right there in front of me, and this goat is gasping for its life. This is a very visual and graphic symbol. And I would look upon this animal gasping for its life, And I'd probably think to myself, that's because of something I did. What happens when I cheat my neighbor, my moral actions, they have real consequences. And the stakes are high. And when I vandalize my neighbor, I am dehumanizing him. I am stripping him of his dignity as one who's created in God's image. My sin fractures my relationship with God and with my neighbor. And when I do that, when I don't love God or love my neighbor as myself, when I sin, I am introducing death into God's good world. Now, as I said, this may seem barbaric to us, but the Israelites did this to experience the gravity of their sin, their mess, the evil that all of us have unleashed into this world. It's serious. It's a matter of life. And death. But in God's grace, He provides this animal as a substitute. The life of this animal covers for my life. Now, that's for the everyday Israelite. To really understand atonement, we need to take it a step further and look at the centerpiece of the book of Leviticus, chapters 16 and 17. The Israelites call it Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. This day is the culmination of all of their sacrifices throughout the year. The Israelite population has been growing quite a bit by this point. And with so many people, there has to be some sin that has gone unchecked. Even unintentional sins or maybe sins that we're ignorant of. There's probably a lot of sin floating around that's not being dealt with. And so they have this one day a year. Uh, This one time a year where they celebrate Yom Kippur to remove the defilement from both the tabernacle and from the community. So let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to read the first five verses to get us going. That's on page 177 in your immersed Bibles if you have that. Leviticus 16. Hear these words. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons. 
who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. Again, you can't just waltz into God's presence. You have to go in with a different posture, and that's what happened to Aaron's sons. They were doing it casually. And the Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there. And I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. When Aaron enters the sanctuary area, he must follow these instructions fully. He must bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on his linen tunic and the linen undergarments worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. Aaron must take from the community of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now the high priest, again, can't come into the most holy place whenever he chooses. He, or else he will die. And the purpose of this day, Yom Kippur, is to cleanse and sanctify the sanctuary and the altars from the uncleanness of the Israelites. The uncleanness that affects every man and woman to a greater or lesser degree pollutes the sanctuary. And by cleansing the sanctuary, they permit the holy God to dwell among them as an unholy people. So first, the high priest dresses for the occasion. Now, on most days, he dresses quite ornately with a beautifully colored robe, along with gold and jewelry. Uh, He almost looks like royalty. And when you're representing the people to God, you are their mediator. You hold status and authority in the community. So you dress in a way that sets yourself apart. But on this day, you dress like a slave. You wear plain linens. Because on this day, you are entering the very presence of God in the most holy place. And before God, even the high priest is stripped of his status and honor. The high priest must sacrifice animals both for himself, because he too is a sinner. He too has made mistakes, so he sacrifices for himself and his family. And also, he sacrifices for the community. As the high priest goes behind the curtain that surrounds the most holy place, uh, he burns incense to create a smoke screen so that he can't see the mercy seat, the place where God's presence is said to dwell. And he sprinkles blood on that mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, as a casual person, you only sprinkle blood on the altar kind of on the outside, but as a high priest, if you've sinned, you need to go to the very center of of the tabernacle. And so that's where he sprinkles blood. And he does this for his own sacrifice and for the sacrifice of the community. But there's one goat that he doesn't sacrifice, and with the live goat, he places his hand on its head, confesses the sin of the nation, And symbolically transfers that sin to this goat. And the goat is then sent away into the desert, removing the sin from the people and from that community. 
Following the ceremony, the participants of the ceremony, they bathed themselves once again and put on normal clothes. The people of Israel celebrate this day as a solemn day of Sabbath rest, of fasting and penance. So why does this atoning sacrifice work? For that, we have to go to the next chapter, Leviticus chapter 17. That's on page 179 of your immersed Bibles, towards the bottom. Leviticus 17, I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. And it says this, Give them this command as well. If any native Israelite or foreigner living among you offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice but does not bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle to offer it to the Lord, that person will be cut off from the community. And if any native Israelite or foreigner lives living among you eats or drinks blood in any form, I will turn against that person and cut him off from the community. So they're not to drink any blood. This is still a part of modern kosher laws today uh, for Jews. And why is that? Why can't you drink the blood? And it says this, For the life of the body is in the blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. That's why I said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood, neither you nor the foreigner living among you. The blood is given for atonement. Blood is not a symbol for life, it's the stuff of life. The animal's life covers for your life. The animal acts as a substitute. The animal receives punishment for Israel's sins so that the people don't have to receive that punishment. God has committed himself to the Israelites, so he has provided a way for his people to be in relationship with him. God made a promise to Abraham, to Israel, and to David that instead of wiping human beings off the face of the earth, he was going to commit to saving them and restoring them and healing them and redeeming them. And if God goes back on his promises, then he's not good. And he's not just. And so that's the paradox of God's justice and God's love in the Bible. That God has committed himself to saving human beings through a human family, the family of Israel. And every time an Israelite went to make a sacrifice, it wasn't a reminder that God was angry at them. It was the complete opposite. That God gave them this whole ritual symbolism to remind them that he loves them. And that he doesn't want to kill them. And God gave the Israelites this elaborate ritual symbolism to sink into their psyche. So every time they're doing this, it communicates to them, God loves you. And he's not going to give up on you. And every time the people of Israel sinned, they made a sacrifice. And every year the high priest would go through this elaborate ritual to cleanse himself, the sanctuary, and the people from their sins. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, while the life of this animal might cover for their lives, it wasn't permanent. They had to keep doing it over and over and over again, and the sacrifice can't change their hearts. This whole system of the priesthood, 
the sacrifice and the temple leaves us longing for something more. And that something more we find in the New Testament in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who despite the whole history of human failure, human failure and sin and death that's entered this world, he came as the perfect high priest, the messianic king, to be the human being that you and I are created and called to be, but have perpetually failed to be. And though he lived a blameless life, he was crucified and died and absorbed into himself the consequences and the effects of all of the evil that you and I have released into this world. He died on our behalf as an atonement for our sins. In God's grace, he provided Jesus as a substitute. He covers the hard costs of our failures. He pays the debts of sin that we can never pay. And he restores our relationship with God. The life of Jesus covers for my life and for your life. His life for our lives. When Jesus died, the curtain that's surrounding the most holy place in the temple you know, the place where the high priest could enter and only once a year that curtain was torn in two when he died. Jesus makes possible for us to enter into the most holy place, into the very presence of God because we only need one mediator. You know, just in the Old Testament, there was one mediator, this high priest, this imperfect human being representing us And here in the New Testament, we have Jesus. The perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice as our mediator between us and God. And the author of Hebrews, which by the way, in your reading, when you read Leviticus 16 and 17, read Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 alongside that. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see some of that imagery there from Leviticus. And he says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we can profess. For he who promised is faithful. God sent his son Jesus as a substitute for us. But not just for our own sake. When you are saved by God, you are saved into the people called the church. And God calls that worldwide church on a mission to bless the whole world for the sake of Jesus. Or some of the language we use around here to be living evidence of a loving God. 
So have you submitted your life to Jesus? Have you joined him on his mission? If not, that's my prayer for you today. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this vivid picture that you've given us of Jesus who covers for us. And for many in this room, uh, we've heard this many times and we're quite familiar with it. But Lord, I also know that in our darkest moments and our deepest failures, we um, sometimes question it. And we question whether God truly loves us. And all we have to do is look to Jesus on the cross. To know, God, that without a doubt, you love us. Because you gave your son, you spared nothing on our behalf, to save us, to restore us to relationship with you, relationship with uh, our fellow believers in Jesus. And Lord, that you desire by your spirit to make this world right again. This world that has been tainted by our sin. And Lord, you desire and you've called us that same call that you placed on Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. We do that through Jesus. And so God, help us to see and help us to live, Lord, as those um, who are honoring you. Lord, I also just heard that um, Gene Schaefer just had a medical emergency, and so we pray for her right now, Lord. Um, I don't know the situation. I know only what Nancy told me, but we ask for your grace and your mercy to be with her, and that you would be her strength in these moments. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ.